don't ever use a pie chart. You'll make you'll you'll kill baby Jesus or fairies or something. <laughs> It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Matt Stratton, and co-hosting with me today is Trevor Hess and Bridget Kramhout. Today, we'll be talking about the book, The Art of Monitoring, and the idea of The Art of Monitoring with James Turnbull. And the show notes for this episode can be found at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Art of Monitoring. But first, a word from our sponsors. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a company that figures, if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. 10th Magnitude empowers businesses to better collaborate across teams and achieve IT transformation using cloud. They enable customers to innovate, automate, and accelerate by leveraging the power of Microsoft Azure. You can find out more at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is sponsored by VictorOps, the company that makes being on-call suck less. Built by a team of avid DevOps practitioners, VictorOps is the most innovative platform available to support modern IT and DevOps incident management. They do it with an unmatched feature set that's designed to support teams through the entire incident lifecycle, from first alert to final retrospective. This means you can respond to incidents more effectively, which in turn helps you release faster, minimize downtime, and get your life back. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash VictorOps to schedule a demo or start your trial. Mention Arrested DevOps and you'll be eligible for some great discounts too. So we had James on the show back in February of 2015, which seems like forever ago, uh, to talk about Docker. And you can check that one out at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Docker. But uh, more recently, he's written a fantastic book titled The Art of Monitoring. So James, uh, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Oh, a year and a half ago. Uh, I was probably, when I spoke, I was probably deep in the midst of writing. This is, book took two years to write. It's 700 odd pages long and uh, uh, I greatly regret starting it. <laughs> um, uh, I think one of the, it's one of those things that you think is going to be uh, a good idea at the time until it grows and grows and grows. Um, beyond that, uh, I'm one of the tri-chairs at Velocity, the Velocity Conference, and uh, I, we just had that last week in New York and uh, it was a super exciting week. Uh, it was a little bit challenging because I broke my ankle a month or so ago. So uh, if you were at Velocity, I was the one zooming past on the knee scooter uh, or up on the stage on the knee scooter uh, looking awkward. Um, and I was also the one staring vaguely off into space when the Percocet kicked in. Um, so uh, <laughs> but other than that, uh, I, I am, um, I, I've just started writing a new book, of, of which the topic is as yet a secret, but um, that's pretty exciting. Ooh. So hopefully maybe in a year and a half I might be talking to you again. <laughs> If I can persuade you to, uh, uh, to of that. Well, let, let's not wait a year and a half. <laughs> and also, I well, wasn't are you, are you trying to tell James to write his book faster. <laughs> no, I'm saying that, that always works. We could talk to him when he's formulated, you know, what the first few chapters looks like, and like wants to talk about how it's going. Like we don't have to wait until there's, you know a shippable, deliverable book, we can have kind of continuous delivery of updates of progress from James. There we go. I, I am very happy to share my uh, my process with you. Uh, it largely involves sitting around in French Parisian coffee shops, smoking Galois, and thinking about <laughs> infrastructure. So um, it's very exciting. 
That sounds glamorous. That, that that sounds to me sort of like the coffee shop we sat in in Budapest where we were working on the Velocity Amsterdam program. Was it New York or Amsterdam that we were struggling with then? It's all a blur. It might New be York. New York. New York. I, I'm writing a book now, and I think my fiancé would appreciate your idea of the writing process involving going to Paris and <laughs> just sitting around. I think she'd be a lot more on board with it if that was part of it, so maybe I'll, I'll pitch Let that. me clarify for you. The question you should ask her is whether you're invited to go to Paris with her. I <laughs> <laughs> you might find that you are not. <laughs> so maybe this is a very important question related to the book, since I see that Ruth gets a mention in the acknowledgments. How does she feel about the new book? Uh... I think she thinks that it keeps me out of trouble. So, <laughs> uh, we have a, we've been together a very long time, and uh, after a while, you know, you run out of things to say, and uh, she stops <laughs> editing the books. And uh, no, um, in all seriousness, I, you know, uh, I do I do like to keep my brain occupied, and um, uh, you know, I think this is a, a useful way of doing that. And um, I'm in the phase now where I'm I'm going to write a couple of chapters, and if it gels, I'll keep writing. If it doesn't, I toss it away. I've got like six books, uh, got a sensu book I wrote like three chapters of and, and decided I didn't want to write about anymore. So stuff like that happened. So it may not be a real thing, but uh, if it works out, it works out. Plus, so, like, I've gotten actual updates from you on other books that you've written. So I feel like you also are constantly producing updates for your existing books. Yeah, these bastards keep making more product. Um, <laughs> uh, the team at Docker keep releasing new versions of things and changing stuff. It's extremely annoying. <laughs> so the answer is write a book about something that never changes. All right, O'Reilly, I am on hand to write your book about Fortran. Okay, I'll Wait, do it. F seventy seven or F ninety? <laughs> Two books. So, but yes, yes, and 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 all, all three people who buy that book will be very happy. <laughs> Sweet. So for this book, James, like, what made you? Obviously, you've been very involved with giving great talks at monitorama you've been in this space for a long time but what made you decide monitoring that needs a book by me so it's actually the second book i've written about monitoring um Mm -hmm. many people don't know that i wrote a book called pro nagios 2.0 which was when nagios 2.0 came out which i have no idea when that was but it's a long time ago i I had lots less gray hair and well i had a lot more hair and a lot less gray hair um and, is this uh, different from Amateur Nagios 2.0? Like, I'm yeah, just curious. Yeah, the name of the series. A-Press called the books, these books, Pro Books. I don't know quite why they called them Pro Books. Um, I, I felt reasons. Like, uh, yeah, reasons, marketing reasons. I'm not a marketing person. Um, so I wrote that about 10 years ago, I think, maybe. Um, okay. And uh, uh, I'd been going to Monitorama, as she said, and I'd been talking to a bunch of folks about monitoring, and I kept having these conversations with what was effectively what I consider the bubble people. And the bubble people are people like like Jason Dixon and and um who who live in this place where monitoring is awesome like like we're monitoring uh, monitoring definitely does not suck um, and then if I talk to anyone outside of the Magic Unicorn uh, Monitorama land they they tell me about their monitoring and it's and it's like they've got PTSD or Stockholm syndrome or and they're like we've got Nagios and it, it, it's it's really awesome right right and they want you to agree with them and I'm like it's not really awesome is it and like how do, how does this work for you and how why did this happen and what did you learn from this post mortem and and it's that sort I mean of, it's probably more awesome than like 
I once worked at a startup that got acquired by some people and they were like, monitoring, that sounds great. Right now, our biggest customer calls us when things are down. And I was like, oh, that's not a good alerting system. (laughs) Yeah. And I talk a bit about sort of monitoring maturity and there's a lot of companies out there that are not very mature. And you're right, that that is like customers telling you something was wrong or monitoring is run by like somebody who is following a script or or they're like, when we restarted the machine last time, that fixed it, um, is is sort of like a, a response to that sort of stuff. So I thought, well, what what are, what can I sort of do to contribute to the to be part of the solution and not part of the problem? So I decided, I, how, if I was to write a book about monitoring again, could I choose a bunch of best of breed tools and build like a monitoring framework um, that may not actually be the world's most practical monitoring framework in in every regard, but one that would represent sort of demonstrate a new way of thinking about monitoring a new architecture. Yeah, I, I, in, in the book, that was one of the things I, I really like was kind of the, the modeling or the maturity, I should say, right? Talking about, you know, being the, and for people who haven't read the book, and if you haven't read the book, go buy it and read it. You know, we're not going to read the whole book to you on the podcast for free. Uh, but you kind of talked <laughs> for about... A small, for a small amount of money, Matt, I will act totally read it aloud to anyone who wants. <laughs> audiobook version. Ooh, audacity. I mean, yeah. I, I would... Yep, I, I consume almost everything audiobook wise now. Um, but yeah, but for again, if you're going to read the book but haven't yet, some spoilers. You're uh, kind of looking at the stages uh, that James talks about. He talks about you know manual or user initiated or no monitoring, and that would be like what Bridget talked about, right? Which is the our monitoring is our customers call and complain. You know, uh, the reactive, which is I think what a lot of people tend to think about when they say we've got ourselves some good monitoring going on, right? It's like, I got a thing that tells me, you know, shit's down and then I'm going to react to it. And then the proactive, which is when monitoring is right core to your business core to managing that infrastructure. It's not an afterthought. It's not um, a piece like that. And then there's a, there's a, a nice line in here that I, that I like where you said that, you know, checks will focus on measuring application performance and business outcomes. And that's what I'm going to say it again, in business outcomes, rather than just things like stock and concerns like CPU and stuff, right? And that last part of that clause, right, and business outcomes is the thing that always resonates to me. Is yep. um, And you want to talk a little bit more about that? I know you go into a lot of detail in the book about thinking that way, but some some tidbits for our listeners. I was thinking about it because I was talking to people about what they monitor and they, they said to me, traditionally, there's still a, what I call a monitoring holy trinity, which is CPU, memory, and disk, right? I, you, you, you continually come across um, folks for whom that's the, you know, that's the, the first thing they leak to. So they, I call that sort of the very host-based, host-centric monitoring. Um, and you ask a lot of them, like, you know, what does this host do? And they go, oh, it's like DNS. Or, and I'm like, so, like, when something breaks, does someone tell you DNS is broken or does someone tell you that they can't access the website or they can't, they can't check out or um, some other transaction doesn't perform. And they're like, well, usually they tell us first that some of the traction transaction doesn't perform. I'm like, well, why not stick your monitoring next to the thing that, that your customers will notice is broken. So you know straight away that they've got a problem instead of putting it way downstream where you have two problems. One is that you've got to identify uh, when something is broken then you've got to correlate that broken thing with whatever else it might be related to um, and then sort of find out whether, okay, oh, wow, this has a huge impact on our payment system when we had no idea. So I, I, I tell the people that they should invert the pyramid 
And you should start with monitoring basic business metrics, things like, uh, you know, number of checkouts, uh, payments made, uh, transactions of some kind. Um, and obviously, you know, from a, you get two things out of that. One is you, you should be measuring that stuff from a latency and customer experience point of view. But two is you know straight away when something goes wrong. And from there, you can build checks underneath that. You can take that business service and say, what is the applications that make up that business service? Oh, it's our payments app. It's uh, our authentication app. Uh, and it's the data warehouse. All of those things need to be running uh, in order for us to, to make a payment. Okay, so I should monitor each of those availability. Huh, which each of those applications, what makes up those applications? What are the services that contribute to them? And then sort of drill down into that. So you will eventually get to CPU, memory, and disk, but a long time after you've actually started looking at the stuff that, that you, you know, more immediately care about. And I think immediately is a really important word there, right? Because like you probably do care if you can't write important customer data to disk anymore. You might not care at 2 a.m. if you uh, are going to have your disk fill up in a week. Yeah, and I, I think that's important too, the, the contextual notifications and the, um, and, and the concept that, that too much monitoring, particularly in the Nagos world, is binary. So it's like this thing either works or it doesn't. So like if you notify me, if let's say I have a cluster of 50 Apache web servers and 10 of them go away, I probably care about it from a performance point of view. Like it, it probably impacts my customer's user experience, but it doesn't actually impact the availability of my application unless I've built a really shitty application. But generally speaking, that's not a problem. It, it's a or in, unless uh, unless what's left can't handle the load anymore. Yeah, true. But I mean that that tends to be a user degradation experience, not a not a like you know from a percentile point of view. Maybe your number of unhappy customers at ninety nine at a ninety nine um, uh, the ninety nine percentile goes up. Um, but it doesn't like it generally means that things are, are, are broadly functional. Um, so should I wake someone up in the middle of the night for that? Maybe, um, but there's definitely a, a, a borderline there. Whereas ten individual Apache notifications hitting Pager Duty and and banging me out of bed at at, at four in the morning, um, that's not overly useful to me, um, and it's probably not very contextual to me either. Well, I mean, it tells you everything's on fire. And if you yeah. get enough, everything's on fire, you stop believing it. Um, whereas if, if you get a message saying performance is latency on, on this key application is down 20%. And by the way, here's a summary of other things that are happening. And in that summary includes, oh, shit, 10% of the Apache cluster has disappeared. Oh, that's a problem. I should deal with that. Um, and I think that's a really important thing is you, you notify about the thing that you should care about from a business point of view and you provide enough sufficient roll-up or ability to drill down so you can see what is contributing to that problem. Yeah, right. And latency I mean, is down, or latency is down, I guess would be a good alert. But, but I think what you're saying is performance is down. Yeah, performance is down. Sorry, latency is up. And, and context is everything, right? You know, and I've, I've given this example before about uh, the sysadmin who freaks out because their SQL server is consuming 90% CPU and says there must clearly be something wrong and I need to react to this and everything. And it's like, wait, that's as designed. It's using all of the stuff that it's supposed to do. Yeah. So that's, if I don't know that, then I think there's something wrong, right? Because I don't have context. That's very point in time too. So like if I have my, like the classic sort of warning alert, the the warning critical threshold in Nagios is like, oh, we'll just set it to like 80% of CPU for warning and and critical is 90%. Um, And you know, at a particular point in time, yeah, the CPU may hit 99%. Um, and should I send an alert for that? Probably not. If the CPU is at 99% for 12 hours straight, like maybe that's a bit more more critical. 
But if that's normal operational load, you're quite right. Why would I care? Um, you know, if if the CPU is at 99% and latency is way up on that, you know, tr- database transaction latency is way up, well, that could indicate there's actually a problem. It's probably not the CPU. That's probably a side effect, but it should encourage you to be able to drill down to things. And it's that context and that correlation that we lack so much of in, in sort of the what's considered to be sort of traditional monitoring. And I wonder if some of that too, and I, we have so many other topics we want to cover. I don't want to stay on this too much longer, but I want to, I want to point to Trevor and say, you wily devs. Uh, I wonder if some of that is because from an ops point of view, we're kind of just reacting, but we aren't necessarily thinking about things like if we ask the developers or even got their buy-in on this monitoring, they, or had them design it, they might say, Oh, I expect this while things garbage collect or, Oh, I expect this sort of behavior because I need an index here. Like, but I think sometimes when we're trying to introspect something that we don't fully understand, we can kind of just react. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. Like that, that leads to another interesting point is like that conversation with Trevor should actually happen when you're building the application, not, not when you're reacting to it at four in the morning. Like the last person you want, you get what you, you get woken up, then you wake the developer up and the developer says, I don't know, maybe it's garbage collection or I don't know, maybe it's this, look, look at, go and look at this stack trace. Whereas if you'd actually had that conversation at, say, 10 o'clock in the morning while you're fully caffeinated and wide awake and you go, let's build into the architecture a bunch of uh, real-time metrics that tell us the state of our application, uh, then you don't have to wake me up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And when you do get woken up, you should be able to see what's actually happening and I give you insight. Um, like I, I think way too much of that, that needs to happen, way more of that needs to happen. Sorry, every, every software project I remember working on um, when I was doing software things, the monitoring conversation wouldn't happen until handoff. I was going to, my first question was going to be, we keep uh, making Trevor the proxy for devs and it's probably <laughs> been two years since Trevor has actually written any application. <laughs> but that's about right. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that's that, just kind of fun. It's just fun to say you devs, yeah. but that's, I mean, I remember that in a pre DevOps world, you know, and which is the reality for a lot of people still, but where we would, it would be, like you said, handoff time, you know, we're ready to go live and it's, and on the checklist, you know, according to what we do is now tech ops, what are you doing for monitoring? And we go, I don't know this thing you have and go to the devs. What should we monitor? They go, well, you're in charge of monitoring. What do you do? You know, you tell me, and we're like, we don't know what your thing does. And the problem is this conversation is happening at the end when nobody's ain't nobody got time for that, you know, and or you're built into a position when it's almost impossible to instrument this application because you should have thought about it three months ago. So everybody talked to each other. Or even doing it for not enough time and when you're being told by leadership that, oh, the cloud will solve that problem. Don't worry about that. Heroku scale. Uh, Okay. I don't know any. I actually don't know any better. (laughs) So this actually, James, this brings me to something that I saw in your book, which I've read a bunch of, though there's a lot of code samples that I kind of scanned. But um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not well, implementing these exact things. Riemann, we all have bought the book. That's very nice of you. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate that. But one of the things that I saw is I'm like, ah, excellent. James has definitely read the Borg paper. So that, can you talk a little bit about when you're architecting monitorable applications, where do you go with the the push-based, just send your event stream somewhere? Where do you go with the self-aware endpoints that like health Z their way through life? And like when people are, do, I mean, probably the answer is yes, but can you talk about the difference between those approaches and like where, so, where do you use one, where do you use the other? So, so every time I bring this up, 
a bunch of Google or SREs roll over in their graves or, or they, they beat me to death with copies of the SRE book or something. <laughs> but, um, so there's two types of monitoring and, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into black box and white box and, and which will probably, again, offend a bunch of people. But I'm going to talk really at the really base level of like traditional uh, sort of Nagios-like monitoring is Nagios is a central server um, and it reaches out and it, and it checks something. It reaches out and, and uh, uh, you know, maybe it connects to a host and, and runs a command to get, a, to get some data back or it connects to a website and retrieves a, a HTTP status code. So that's essentially, that's essentially what we call pool-based monitoring. So that there's a central th- thing that, that reaches out. And that central thing um, needs to know about all the hosts, um, needs to have a route to all the hosts, and it needs to be able to punch holes in whatever security and all this stuff um, uh, that's out there. And it's great uh, if your environment is fairly static. Um, and this is, again, all arguable points. There's a lot of people who disagree with me. Uh, if your environment's fairly static and your hosts don't change that much. But enter a world where you might be running Docker containers or virtual machines or in the cloud where Amazon instances disappear and reappear, Google Cloud, an Amazon instance becomes a Google Cloud instance, becomes a Heroku app, becomes a Docker container, becomes a Docker swarm, becomes a rocket container, et cetera, et cetera. Host names change, services change, they might migrate places, uh, DNS and NTP changes, uh, application tags and states and all that sort of thing changes. Um, in which case, it's really hard to keep that central repository up to date. Um, plus, if things keep moving around, it's hard to work out, you know, how to tell it, you know, go and look at this IP address. No, this IP address. Oh, go and find this route. Oh, you haven't got a security group that that works for. That, that's hard stuff to do. Um, whereas if you centralize your monitoring uh, on the, the, the thing that is being monitored itself, then what happens is when that thing wakes up, let's say it's a Docker container, it wakes up and says, oh, I'm a Docker container. Uh, I'm going to run my application. Inside my application is, say, a StatsD service um, and, uh, or a bunch of StatsD metrics. And so the application wakes up and says, oh, I need to send the stuff. So it could say wake up and talk to some sort of service catalog or some sort of uh, service discovery tool like console is a good example of this or ATCD or Zookeeper. Wakes up and says, tell me about the monitoring or it might have a default monitoring built in and it starts pushing the monitoring to that thing. The, the monitoring service wakes up and says, oh, I've got a new thing. And it checks it checks this out. I know what this thing is. Maybe it's got some metadata or a tag. Maybe it's sending me specific type of events. Um, it says, oh, I know that this is. This thing is a HTTP service. It keeps sending me 200s. That's a good thing. But I have a check that sort of that kicks off if it, if it sends me a 500, oh, and that'll trigger an alert. So in that world, if that service goes away, uh, I don't have to worry about centralized configuration for it. I don't worry about centralized management. Um, I, 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 right. I could also do things like, if that service goes away, I can actually check for its presence. Instead of, say, pinging out to a thing and, and monitoring it, I can have the thing say, oh, you know about this Docker container. Do something if the Docker container goes away for more than 30 seconds. Um, right. So stuff like that. Uh, that's a very simplistic, and there are a number of people rolling, spinning violently and frothing at the mouth that, that I've made that very <laughs> simplistic. Um, but I sure, find sure. that, that push-based model is much more effective. Yeah, I mean, and... I guess I would say yes. I mean, obviously, yes, I totally agree with you on that because it makes so much more sense than worrying about static configurations or about using like chef search constantly to try to update your stuff. Or, I mean, I've, I've, we've all gone down this path and it's led to madness. Yeah. So you have to wait for your monitoring to converge in order to do monitoring. Right. But I guess when my, the point I was trying to get at just because I, this isn't just kind of a devil's advocate question. I'm not sure I actually really know when you have 
the um, the health Z style endpoint that you actually configure, say, your health checks against, how much uh, should be in that endpoint that you're going to go out and pull as opposed to the stuff that you should be emitting all the time and sending into your centralized, you know, log store. Oh, okay. I see. Um, sorry. I took you on a way tangent then. Um, so <laughs> I mean, I think, I think people are going to be very interested in all that stuff too, but I kind of am going for like a very specific, you kind of have to decide which stuff goes where. Yeah. So I, I tend to look at like, I tend to look at this first and foremost by uh, storage is cheap. Uh, you can never mm-hmm. have too, too much data. You can always have mm-hmm. too little. Um, so I tend to specify a baseline everywhere. I tend to be like, I should collect a baseline set of metrics on every single machine. And maybe that you might think about those like traditional host-based metrics, but probably with a bit more. Um, so, uh, if I think about, um, taking that up to the application level, uh, here's a good example. So recently, um, uh, built a bunch of services with some, some people, uh, based on drop wizard, which is a Java framework. Um, okay. And the great thing about Dropwizard, it, it comes, it, you know, it, it comes with a bunch of things like logging and monitoring and metrics and stuff like that, like like the, the scaffolding for all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we're able to define, okay, this is a, a service running on the JVM, so we want to we want to emit all of these JVM related metrics. It's a HTTP service, so by default we want to emit some basic HTTP state status stuff, um, and it's a RESTful interface, um, you know, we, the, so we want to emit these other things. Um, so it's very much sort of choosing a, you choose a baseline of things that should be emitted for everything. And then, okay. you know, the, the, what on top of that, which is like the business logic usually or the business service that you selectively determine what you're going to monitor there. And then I think you probably, from what you're describing, especially when you're describing like the microservices framework that you're, or the microservices architecture that your, you know, sample application throughout the book is use, using, it seems likely that your actual health endpoint is going to be a very limited subset of things. It's not going to be absolutely every single thing that you would be sending into your centralized logging. No, probably not. Like something like a like a microservice is probably like I would focus on business metrics, some core inf- application metrics. But why collect a huge amount of like for a, a like you know Docker emits a bunch of metrics like CPU and memory from a container that let's add a job scheduling system or a container might live for. Uh, let's say 30 seconds optimistically. Do I really want to know about its memory and CPUs? Probably not. Um, like that seems like a waste. Um, but I definitely want to know what it did. Like I definitely want to know that it processed these transactions or it it, it performed this task or um, it managed to connect to this other service and do this thing. Um, like that, that's useful information. So you mentioned disk being cheap. So like, how would you say that relates to the downsampling stuff that's possible with with Whisper? Like, do you do you think disk is so cheap that people should not try to reduce the amount of stuff they're storing? Or like, is search does search space still matter? Like, does the measure any measure anything measure everything advice still hold? Like, what's so your I, what's your opinion there? I think this is nuanced. Um, and it, it, unfortunately, like all things that that involve uh, platitudes or, or sound bites, like you know, monitor everything, measure everything, keep everything is like very cheap to say. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to look at it in terms of uh, you should be definitely should be monitoring things that are much higher resolution than you do now. If you're monitoring stuff at say, if you're monitoring stuff at thirty second intervals or sixty second intervals, or hell, God help you, five minute intervals you actually have no fucking idea how your infrastructure is performing. 
Same, saying the free point. level of cloud watch is not enough. <laughs> yeah. One data point every five minutes tells you zilch about how your application is performing. So you need to definitely create create a better resolution there. I, I recommend a second. I, I recommend a, a, a data point every second. Um, but then you ask yourself, oh, my God, this is a huge amount of data. So I said to myself, well, how long do you need that resolution for? Like uh, I look at that and I go, maybe you need that resolution for 24 hours. So keeping 24 hours worth of one-second data is very different than keeping a lifetime of one-second data. So I do think there's a, it's possible to to down to to sort of you know, as you say down downsample that as as Whisper does very cleverly out of the box. Mm-hmm. There are some challenges with downsampling. You can't actually go back the other way, uh, and it may not actually be reflective <laughs> reflective of of uh, of reality. Theo Schlossnagel would tell you that any downsampled metric is not a real metric anymore, uh, and he's kind of right. Like, um, but I look at it in terms of. Uh, that downsampled metric, um, maybe I'm caring about trends. Maybe I'm caring about trends at a much lower resolution. Maybe I'm caring, caring about uh, like a pattern of like uh, percentage growth over three months at that sort of level. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm not actually caring about on a minute-to-minute basis if I'm really caring about my user latency um, is, is that one-second data. So one-second data useful for that immediate user latency, user experience. Three-month downsampled data, much better for capacity planning, thinking about the future. Oh, wow, like we've gone up. Like this service is now, well, it's 30% um, quarter-on-quarter growth. We're definitely going to run it over, you know, Oompa Loompa's pedaling or whatever happens to be your cloud <laughs> platform. Well, and maybe not every single thing is in the cloud either. Like I think when people are trying to do some sort of God help them hybrid or whatever it is they're doing, I kind of wonder, like, you know, the whole ridic- possibly ridiculous data gravity thing. Like, if yeah. you have terabytes of log data and it's somewhere, what happens when you need to analyze it somewhere else? Yeah. And, TLDR, and, you know, good luck, have fun. <laughs> yeah, I think good luck, have fun is, is probably the answer you get from most folks. Um, and I think, too, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a heretical thing to say these days, but there are a lot of people that run data centers. Like, physical infrastructure where they pay actual money for actual iron that someone racks in a machine uh, and is not just an, an, an Amazon instance. Um, and that requires I, I talk to a lot of those money. people regularly. Uh, yeah. Like, you, in fact, Pivotal would be a prime example of people that have those people as customers. Um, and that requires you to think about depreciation, uh, to think about budgeting. And if you can't do capacity planning at a reasonably high resolution or a reasonably high understanding, you're going to struggle. Like the CFO, one doesn't want to get told one morning, oops, we got our capacity planning wrong and need a million bucks worth of hardware. It's a fast way to get fired. So that kind of brings us to questions around pricing for this stuff. You you go into a great deal of copious detail um, about a lot of the really cool DIY tools in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've used a bunch of them. I know that my, my podcast co-hosts have used some of them, and obviously you've used them all extensively. You also mentioned some SaaS services. Um, I think... You know, and none of these mentions are an endorsement, but for example, Splunk, we all know and love Splunk's pricing model. Like how do people make those decisions or how would you recommend they make those decisions in terms of like the pricing model for their SaaS metric? Say they've done enough capacity planning to know that they have this many widgets per hour. They have this much disk they're going to use. They have this many, God help us, hosts or whatever, like how do they choose, not just based on features, but also based on like, can, how do they do capacity planning of, can I afford this? Yeah, I think that's, I think you know, like SaaS services are interesting. I tend to look at service service consumption as being based on core business and, and core competency. So 
I'm not interested in being PagerDuty or VictorOps. Like I, I, me money, running a paging service, no value to me at all. Them providing me with a highly available paging service, I, I pay a fair bit of money for that. Maybe not as much as they charge sometimes, but I, I'd pay money for that. <laughs> um, so because I don't need to run that infrastructure. Uh, in, in previous roles, I've been heavily in, in living in the AWS world where for us as economies of scale, um, buying services from Amazon was significantly cheaper than having a DevOps team or having a, uh, an ops team or having a, a group of engineers who are responsible for just managing and running up infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, I think that's cost-benefit stuff you have to do. Um, like I think you need to go, what do I need, information do I need to, to gain this insight? Um, okay, let's do some rough back-of-the-napkin numbers. That works out to this. What is that? What is that? What is that? You know, here's, here's four or five different options. One is, you know, I host it ourselves. Another might be, um, you know, buy a off-the-shelf appliance. Another might be buy a SaaS service. Um, you know, Splunk, obviously, things, things like Splunk come in both forms. Another might be, you know, uh, it's not worth us actually collecting this, like the, the cost to us, the incremental cost to us of collecting this versus the impact of us getting it wrong is not high enough. Like you can do those pros and cons and that math relatively easily. And I, yeah, I, well, I think the one that's, yeah. I think yeah. the one that's difficult and I've done this math, I've had a couple of different jobs myself and I'm sure you've done it too. But I think the one that's a little difficult is until you stand something up, you don't have an idea of what your widgets per second are going to look like to the point where you could even do back of the envelope calculation. Yeah. I, I think this is prototyping. You need to do a lot of prototyping. Um, uh, I think that that uh, um, a lot of this stuff is very much. Um, uh, you, you definitely need to. You definitely need to be thinking about proof of concept, uh, thinking about prototypes, and thinking about minimum viable product. Go and talk to your application development team if you're an ops person, and ask them what they mean by minimum viable product, and then start treating your ops experiments as that. So you build the bare minimum you need in order to learn something new or try something out. Uh, experiment with that. Iterate on it. And if you're happy with it, then you double down and you build on it. Otherwise, you throw it away. You don't do the traditional ops thing, which is map out some big plan with a project plan and, and you don't think about, I'm going to spend three months building Elk. What you do is you build yourself a tiny Elk server or you go to Amazon and, and use one of their, their Elk service or, or Google and use their, I think Google has one too, who knows, um, and you go. Okay, there's, there's Docker what, images you can yeah, go grab. Images, to see that. All that sort of stuff. And you say, what does this look like? And let me choose a single host and send its logs there. Okay, I get I get this much logs every day, and out of these logs, this percentage is the application, this percentage is the operating system. I have a hundred machines. I should be able to do back of the envelope math based on that. And that's the trick I think is that that's hard for for uh, an ops background is back of the envelope math. Right? <laughs> I have worked with. <laughs> dozens or hundred, however many people in proof of concept and ops people in a proof of concept want to hit every corner case imaginable, right? <laughs> I need to make sure that this product is going to work for everything that we yeah. do. Okay. We're going to do this thing. Now let's think about this. Now let's think about this. Now let's think about this. And so you're back in the napkin math there where you said, okay, I can estimate. Are you going to be exactly right? That's why you need no. a developer in the room to tell you to just do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the developer honestly, I, just says yellow. Right, but I mean, but then to say, okay, it's fuzzy, but it's going to even itself out, right? Because <laughs> there's yeah. going to be sometimes that it's going to be less per host, but that's okay. So really good developers, and not all developers do this, but really good developers are, are, are constantly making what I call risk decisions. They're like, 
I'm aware that this is not the most awesome algorithm or I'm aware that this is not the most performant uh, method, uh, but I'm going to work out whether refactoring it right now and optimizing it is worth my time versus me punching out this whole feature or spiking out this whole feature. And they keep doing those trade-offs. They keep doing those evaluations. And that is one of the hardest things to teach an ops person. Yep. I, I, it took me years to work it out. And in fact, the first time I actually managed to work it out had nothing to do with IT. I was sitting down with our CFO at the time and, um, and, he, and uh, she was talking about how she decided, like how it costs, how she did cost planning and cost estimates. Um, and like there's a, there's a whole like science in financial forecasting. And, and I, I was looking at it and I'm going, huh, like this, is, this, this, model, this modeling stuff is it, based on taking small bits of data and modeling out outcomes. Huh, you could extend this to whole, and of course, I later discovered there's a whole science called operations modeling, which is obviously operations in the logistics sense, not the operations in the IT sense, where there's a whole bunch of science behind this that you can actually do and use and, and consume. Um, again, we are not invented here. I don't know. Um, it, goes, it goes back to learning skills that are not necessarily directly related to IT operations when we do yep. stuff like this. Like, we have to learn how to write a business case. You know, you have to learn how to how to do this kind of modeling because that's what you're doing, right? It, it's much easier to just sort of say, "Well, I told you so," or whatnot. Um, yeah, and that is that is the I will. That's the one thing I will never forgive an engineer doing is saying, "I told you so." Um, like I, I, I'm I'm a very I'm a really nice boss. Like I, I I'm not a, I'm, I don't think I've ever shouted at anyone. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever shouted at anyone. Um, but the one thing I won't abide is is people going, I told you so, I told you so. And I'm like, you cle- A, you clearly didn't because you didn't articulate the risk in such a way that we, you know, we were making a good decision. And B, sh- the best answer here is is not like being blameful about this but rather going, okay, we fucked this up. What do we learn from that and how do we not fuck it up next time? That's, that's perfect because it's like none of us – even if James told us the right thing and we should have listened to him, none of us deliberately thought, James is right. He's definitely right. Let's ignore what he said and have a terrible outage. Like no one's going to work making that decision. That would be ridiculous. I, I certainly hope so. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think the, I think the, um, I think the, you know, obviously that, that ties closely into sort of blameless postmortem concept, but um like I'm not infallible. Engineers are not infallible. You will make mistakes. Uh, you will underestimate things. You will fuck things up. Uh, it's all a learning curve, right? But you just want to make sure you're better at it next time. And I think, you know, uh, uh, yeah, no. yeah, absolutely. And this kind of also, when you, you made me uh, remember that, Hey, we didn't invent all of this sciencey stuff right here in, in it operations. And like, we also, IT operations has changed a lot. Like you talk at the beginning of your book about how there was a way that IT was considered a cost center. Try to minimize that cost. I feel like there's orgs that like if IT still reports up through the CFO, you probably have that problem going on still. But like you talk a little bit about how that's changing, but then, you know, people always say like the future's here, but it's not evenly distributed. Can you kind of talk about like how you actually see this playing out in terms of these changes? You know, yeah. in terms of people taking the data from other, you know, other sciences, whatever. I think this is actually very closely related to financial stuff. Is that when a lot of the companies that are treat IT now as a as a um, a revenue center, not a cost center, and in other words, something that is required for them to do business, um, or or you know, uh, 
high powering it or, or, or giving it more more juice or fuel actually makes makes more money for the company. The companies that have done that have actually done the sort of financial modeling to go, you know, how are our core lines of business delivered to our customers? Oh crap, they all require this technology stuff. Like we don't longer have a fax machine that takes orders and a pool of people that that take those orders off the fax machine and do data entry and then send them to the warehouse and then you know, somebody picks them. That all happens on a computer. So if I want my business to continue, then I, that needs to work. Okay, that needs to work. That's important. Okay, well, maybe that's not just a cost center anymore. I have to spend, like I literally have to spend money on this in order to stay in business. And the second thing is they start to realize our customers come back because it takes them less time to check out on our site or our logistics are faster than someone else's, or if I'm UPS, like I deliver one day, one day on time, 99% of the time versus my competition who delivers same day only 80% of the time. Like that's a tangible difference in user experience and customer experience that will generate customer loyalty, will generate additional leads and generate people and, and say to people, I should use this service. Um, this is Amazon's a classic example of this, right? Amazon's site is probably not the prettiest thing in the world. Um, it's kind of a bit dated and stuff like that. But the one experience that's really, really good on the Amazon side is checking out. Like it is incredibly simple to check out because Amazon and knows. Prime. Yeah, and, and Prime. And Prime is like yeah. super solid. Yeah. Amazon knows that that's where their business is, is people being able to go, I found the thing, I clicked the button, I got the thing. Like one-click ordering. I have no idea how much money that makes, but I guarantee you one-click ordering is heavily instrumented, heavily A-B tested, heavily experimented on, and if you broke, you know, if you if you if you did something to one click ordering that impacted them, they would know pretty quickly that something was wrong, and they would move, move heaven and earth to fix that. What was I just reading that was giving an example, and they were illustrating from a you know an Amazon keynote, and, and that's what they were talking about was one click. But it was like the product was quiet at the time, but basically saying this is a new thing, a way we're doing it in a new way in terms of development and release, and it was. It was one click. Let's yeah, see if I can find that reference and put it in the show notes. At yeah, it might have been Werner Vogels uh, at some point. I, 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 I do remember someone talking about that, um, like, uh, you know, like if you're going to spend money, you spend money on, on the thing that drives revenue and, 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 like, all of a sudden IT is now that thing. I think as, as much as we can talk about, like, business metrics and you're not the only customer of your metrics and the high-level stuff, I know that – since we have you here and you can answer like super detailed technical questions too, we have some. So like, um, okay. So I'll, I'll just kind of pick one at seemingly random. When you talk about putting those deployment lines on the graph, like we've all seen that. Oh, look, everything went hockey shaped pear stick, you know, pear shaped hockey stick, whatever sadness right after the deploy, or maybe became so much better after the deploy how does that differ, if at all, in a world of uh, like continuous delivery, continuous deployment, whatever you want to call it? Like, if people are yoloing changes out into prod with all sorts of feature flags on them, like you know, eight hundred times a second or whatever it is that the unicorns are doing these days, like, tell us about how having the deployment lines on the graph can even be correlated with anything, or like, what what would you recommend at that point? So I think that it's interesting with the definition of continuous delivery, right? So let's let's say your continuous delivery is every time someone commits to master, uh, we generate a new artifact or we push out the application. Guarantee you that doesn't happen in real time. Uh, it, it doesn't happen immediately. Like it's not a snap, snap, snap exercise. You've probably got like 30 seconds or a minute or sometimes even longer while that deployment happens. 
Um, so realistically, there are very few places that are continuous delivering where that it's deployed. Like you might deploy 800 times a day, 800 divided in 24 hours. There's still enough window to see when a change happens. But let's hypothetically say that, that you can deploy a change in 15 seconds. That deployment line becomes less about the line on the graph and, and more about um, uh, the metadata attached to that, 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 that line. So, you know, instead of my deployment thing being something I render on the graph, it's actually an event that gets triggered that has like, it's this Git char, uh, these feature flags are enabled, this new feature flag is enabled, uh, it's a new version of the API so that the, the event is tagged with the new version of the API. And so I can actually go back, I can look at this and say, huh, this started behaving badly at the same time I saw this event. What's the difference between this version and the old version? This char, this char, compare that, or, oh, we turned this feature flag on. Huh, that, that explains that behavior. Or, you know, uh, we suddenly can't connect this other thing oh, the API version of that has changed. So it becomes about that metadata and less about the line on the graph. Um, it becomes about being able to say, you know, where in my stream of events did this thing change? So in, you also talked in the, that, that makes sense, but then you also talked in the book about um, and showed some examples of how to use, say, Docker labels, which have been kind of evolving, but they exist for containers and images both now So and have for a while now. So can you kind of talk about when you have these ephemeral containers that come and go like, how I saw some of the examples in the book, but I'm wondering if you can kind of highlight for people who want to read it and haven't yet, like how would you recommend using labels with your containers to achieve exactly what you were just saying about metadata? So labels are still very mature. Like, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges around them. Um, uh, it's getting there a lot better, but essentially, um, so here's, here's a good example of a way to use metadata like that. So let's say I tag all of the containers of a particular class of, um, Let's say the containers are all um, uh, a web service of some kind. Uh, it's very easy to, to take all of the events, tag them in a particular way, and apply them to a heat map. So I can say, uh, I can say, I want to look at all of the events that are tagged with version one, and all of the events that are tagged with version one point one, and I want to have them show up in a heat map or show up in it. And so I can see that, oh, I've just rolled out. I, I you know, I've. Uh, Canary rolled out 10% of my things with version 1.1. And, oh, my God, my HTTP uh, 500 errors had just gone a big red blossom all across my heat map. Um, like that 10% is just lit up with, with things. We need, to, we, need, you know, we need to back that out or we need to, we need to fix whatever it is and redeploy or, or you know, roll forward until you've, you've got the right thing. Um, it's also a really good way of being able to correlate. Um, so labels is a good example I would like particular alerting behavior or particular check behavior to apply to, uh, let's say, this is a simple example. I would like to be alerted if all the things tagged with production, labeled with production, have a problem, but all of the other Docker containers labeled with anything, you know, insert regex for dev, test, uh, staging, or whatever, I would just like to bit, bit bucket those and never hear about them if they break. Um, so stuff like that allows you to, <laughs> allows you to say, you know, uh, Bitbucket. Did I say that? Yeah. Um, uh, allows you to sort of be selective about what you what you act on and and what you uh, what you do, and allows you to be quite creative about graphing. I think people think about visualizations very much in terms of things like line graphs. Um, uh, and will, oh God, help you pie charts. Don't ever use a pie chart. You'll make you'll you'll kill baby Jesus or fairies or something. <laughs> Certainly, data science people hate you when you use pie graphs. But um, like you need to think about using this data in a way. Hell, use it as a, as a word cloud. Use it as, as a as a tag cloud. Like there's there are ways to to 
because uh, example, like make the largest thing in the tag cloud the 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 tag that has the most failed somethings. Like there's also I'm imagining being paged and like the artifact that pager duty delivers to you is is a, a word cloud and it's just yeah, like oh I, my God. Interested in that, but I mean it's you've been paged because yeah. fail. Yeah. <laughs> epic fail. Uh, you can't have epic, you've got to have epic fail. But um like stuff like that, like that that metadata becomes it becomes decoration on your events and but it becomes a really powerful way of routing, manipulating, um, and visualizing your events. Yeah, that that is actually a, a really. I think that's a really useful way of thinking about it. Is like everywhere, and I know there's uh, some projects you refer to in the book, like Nagios Herald. It's like no matter how old or new the tools you're using are, whether you're using Docker Label or Nagios Herald or something in between, adding all the context you possibly can is going to arm people better for you know that 3 a.m. struggle. Yeah, because like if I wake up in the in the 3 a.m. and uh, yes, alert, alert for something that I don't really care about has snuck through, but I see that the three the three tags on this particular alert are staging backup server four, um, you know, uh, disk disk sixty eight percent. I I can I can make a reasonable assessment about whether I care about that, and that assessment might be very different if it says production uh, the only server I run my application on disk hundred percent. Like I, th- th- those those that sort of context. Um, or that additional metadata will make the difference between me going back to sleep and having a, a, a somewhat more restful night and me bouncing out of bed and going, you know, must fix. And I'm much better. You would that. very much like to have, what you're saying is you'd very much like to have the more restful night and probably everyone who reads your book will be able to have the more restful night. I hope so. With that, I mean, I think we got, uh, we could probably hit, hit one more, one more question and then, then we'll, we'll start thinking about uh, wrapping it up. Uh, one of the things that, that I want to, let me put it this way. I'm going to ask one more question and then I guess, you know, Bridget and Trevor can ask more questions if they want. But uh, you, you, I'm interested to know what the response in general has been um, to, to your book. You know, what have, what have you seen? What have people besides Google SREs coming and beating the heck out of you with the Google SRE book? You know, um, and, uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen sort of three broad categories of responses. I've seen people go, this is really cool. Um, you've documented a bunch of technologies I've always wanted to try. And I tried to make it so that you could use bits and pieces of things. Like I tried to do it so you know, if, you, if you just want to use Elk or Graphite or, or turn on Docker monitoring, you don't have to use uh, Reman and the whole central event monitoring things. You could easily plug other things in there. Um, so I've had a bunch of people go, this is really cool. It's given me an insight into, into the way, a way to do monitoring. I've had a second group of people who have gone, I, I like the idea of your thing, but you chose a tool I don't like. Uh, or you've chosen a tool I, I don't think you should have chosen, and um, I'm, I'm cool about that too. I, I'm very, I'm totally agnostic about tools. Um, you should totally choose the tool that works best for you. Um, honestly, if that's a pigeon, a carrier pigeon doing doing a flying over to your data center and pecking, <laughs> pecking on the front of your your, uh, your, and that works for you, totally use it. Um, I remember that RFC. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not scalable, but it, it, it's it's something. And then I've had a third category of people. Um, I've had some. I've had some hilarious reviews of the book and I've had some hilarious emails from people basically calling me a total idiot um, and that, uh, that their Nagios installation is perfect. Uh, anyone who, who uh, they've, they've rained, uh, I'm guessing there might be some neckbeardy stuff in there. Um, I'm, I have had a few people label the JVM as evil. Um, that's usually old school ops people. I, I hear that a fair bit. Um, but I've had a lot of people who are like Nagios is genius 
uh, if you fail to see Nagios as genius, what, you know, why has it existed for 15 years? Um, I haven't responded to a lot of those um, other than to say thank you very much for your kind feedback. Um, but it tells me out there that, that, that hopefully if I get through to some people in that first and second group and maybe I make somebody in that third group think about things and at some point in time if they do wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, fuck, my Nagios didn't, has told me about a stupid thing and I haven't slept properly for a month, maybe that James guy wasn't a total freak. Um, and they can take or leave the tools as long as they think about the concepts. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good way to put it. And I actually do have a question about one of the specific tools. Um, so I noticed that in your acknowledgments, you thank Kyle Kingsbury, and you go into a lot of detail about Riemann, and that's cool. But then you also have like this entire appendix about functional programming, which I honestly <laughs> did not read yet. And I'm kind of wondering, is there like some kind of cult of functional programming here? Like, what is the deal there? I, I'm just going to shake my fist at, at Trevor and say, you devs, what is all the stuff? So What's going on there? <laughs> so let me give you the reason why I think, so I think functional programming is pretty cool. I don't think it's the be all and end all, but I think it's pretty cool. And the reason I think it's pretty cool should appeal to every single ops person. And that is the idea that you distill your code down to the simplest possible function. Um, and that function has no side effects. So the data that comes in always comes out the same way. It doesn't, it, it, it's, it's very easy to model, it's very easy to understand, and it's very easy to compose things out of these functions that, that are very easy to introspect and understand. Um, that's the holy grail for a lot of ops people, right? Um, and a significant number of our outages occur because weird side effects happen. Um, so sure. I think functional programming says uh, there's a lot there that appeals to me. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, – uh, I think there's also a community out there that are a bit dogmatic, so, like, I, I do struggle sometimes with um, uh, certain communities and they're, they're sort of like there is only one way and it is the functional way. Um, I think everything has its place uh, and I think you need to introduce tools, the best tool for the job to solve a particular problem. I think ultimately if you're building like a – if I was building a, uh, a highly resilient service like, a, say, a financial transaction service, uh, I would strongly recommend – that you think about functioning program, functional programming principles as a way to build that because I think it will make, in the long term, your ability to, to build a resilient, testable, introspectable, uh, understandable platform will be a lot easier. And that comes with, the, you know, there's a bunch of side issues over there with choose choice of languages like type safety and, like, there's a bunch of stuff in there that, that, that is also sort of co-joined or co at least, you know, maybe not the same building but living in the yurt next door, like principles that, that sort of map, map in there as well. Um, so I, I think from that point of view, that's why functional programming interests me. Um, but definitely it, it, it can be a – if your experience is Bash, Perl, Python, Ruby, um, it can be a bit of a weird thing. Um, but honestly, you know, branch out, try something new, have a go. Uh, why not? I mean, I wrote some prologue in college, and then I was like, "Whoa, okay." <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge fan. Like Lisp, Lisp, uh, uh, um, uh, the Sikpi book, um, uh, structured uh, structure and interpretation of computer programs, which is a classic textbook. Um, I was going to say, like that textbook is literally sitting over behind me somewhere. Yeah. Um, all of examples are in Lisp, um, and and I learned yep. more from that the first three or four chapters of that book than I probably did in five years of working in, in IT. Um, uh, yeah. Plus lots of parentheses. Yes, I, and I, I must admit that is somewhat, a somewhat uh, uh, you know, a somewhat interesting experience if you're But, hell, you should have syntax highlighting. You should have uh, linting. 
if you if you can't get parentheses right, you shouldn't be writing configuration. No. And with some that, of us wrote some of us wrote a lot of scheme back before there was any such thing oh, built into BI. Yes. <laughs> but yes, with that. If you can't get parentheses right, you shouldn't be writing configuration at all. That's what I'm going to take. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was, that there's a sound so, so what's your so what's your TLDR? What's your takeaway for people who decide that after they read your 700 page tome, they probably want to try to write a book? What's your advice to them? Oh, I'm listening with your ears right now. Um, <laughs> so, I think that the, the three things I, I always tell people when writing a book is that um, unless you're John Grisham, it won't make you a lot of money. You should really be writing it because you're interested in exposure. Um, like you probably, you might make a little bit of money depending on the topic, but um, it's not going to be a replace your day job. Probably, you should be thinking about it as a way to exercise your brain, get some exposure, uh, improve your career, enhance your career possibilities, get a new job. Um, the second thing is that um, it always takes more time than you think. Um, uh, you know, it, it is your initial estimate of how long the book is going to take to write will be wildly unrealistic. This is like. If you think about from a programming point of view, this is like uh, like building an estimate for a feature blindfolded, spinning in a hurricane uh, on, on, on during a, an eclipse. Uh, you so pretty much double, triple, quadruple ad contingency. And the third thing is that um, uh, you need to write every single day. It's not something you can do in spit fits and starts. You, if you have family and kids, you need to be able to go. This is going to be a commitment that is going to take me away from them for like three or four hours every single night or, or two hours every single night. You cannot stop and start. You will never finish anything. You have to sit down every day and hammer out a page or a few words or something for at least an hour or a couple of hours every single day. Otherwise, you will not be successful. Um, You're making this sound like exercise or you know, paying attention work. to your it's life. A second job. <laughs> I, I can definitely vouch for the do some of it every day versus like, so what I'm doing now, I have deadlines and the two chapters I've written so far have come about when I sat there and said, holy shit, I have this entire chapter due tomorrow. It's, it's very reminiscent of how I wrote papers in school and it gets done, but it's definitely does not reflect my best work. What are you writing, man? Um, so I'm writing a book called Implementing Chef. So it's a, oh, cool. a basics of chef book. Um, and we'll be talking about it more on the show as it gets closer to being a thing. Yeah, Trevor is actually apparently the technical reviewer of it, which is... <laughs> oh, sweet. I didn't realize I was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's definitely some folks who are better editors than others in that regard. Um, uh, the, there's, there's at least some folks at O'Reilly who shall remain nameless for whom we're able to strike fear deep in the hearts of authors with just occasional emails going, how are you progressing when is chapter three due? Uh, when will you have chapter three for me? <laughs> so yeah, hopefully you don't have one of those. So what do you have? Do you have any, uh, anything for our listeners to check out James uh, that you'd like to recommend any, anything like that? Uh, I've been playing with a couple of tools. Um, uh, I, I noticed that that Bridget has already done a shout out to Charities Honeycomb. I, I, I recommend folks have a look at that. It's an interesting service. Uh, Coda Hale and Mark Headland, who are two folks who have been around in the engineering and distributed systems world for a long time. Mark was the CTO at Stripe and then the 
VP of engineering slash product at, at um, Etsy, uh, they've released a new service called Skyliner, um, skyliner.io. Uh, it's a it's a provisioning system, Amazon-focused provisioning system. Uh, I think it's kind of cool. I've been playing with it a little bit. Um, uh, it's designed for people who don't who want to do things like continuous deployment, who want to do things like manage complex infrastructures uh, without really understanding, like, you know, oh, my God, I need a security group or a, or an ASG and, and then going, what, James, what's an ASG? Uh, it's really designed for that sort of, like, I'm a startup and I want to build my infrastructure fast but in a reliable, consistent way. It's worth having a look. Um, we've talked a bit about monitoring. I thoroughly recommend Jason Dixon's In Progress, the graph, Graphite book. Uh, if you work with Graphite, um, uh, please don't, don't and I, please don't, you know, it has a bad rep every now and again. Whisper has a bad rep, but uh, Jason is now working full-time on making Graphite more awesome, uh, and his book is an excellent complement to that. Uh, I, I really enjoyed reading the chapters he's got available and, and uh, hopefully his editor is someone at O'Reilly who'll be pushing him to finish that. Uh, and the last thing is you should all go and vote and not for Donald Trump. I'm, I'm, uh, this is my uh, adopted home and uh, I, I'm not allowed to vote here. If I could actually uh, vote, I, 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 would be, I would be firmly, uh, firmly trying to, to, uh, to uh, nominate someone who is not a psychopathic racist. So apologies if I if You're I, here. cut that out if I'm if I if that's not an appropriate statement for arrested DevOps. If anybody's okay with psychopathic racism, I would really prefer if they don't listen to this podcast or ever talk to me. So Look, feel free to edit that out if it's, uh, that's not that's not on topic. Bridget, what do you got? Um, well, apparently I did steal one of the ones that James wanted to talk about. Um, have you actually been able to go through like a demo with charity yet of honeycomb.io, James? No, I've had it, I've had it earnestly described to me on several occasions now. Uh, generally, depending on how lubricated with alcohol charity was with varying levels of, of, uh, of wild, wild enthusiasm, I am very keen to see a demo, but I hear awesome think folks who have. And, um, uh, she's an incredibly smart woman uh, who has built some incredible bits of infrastructure. That alone is worth checking this out. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. I'm going to hopefully uh, do a hangout with her later this week because, of course, even though we were at Velocity New York together, um, as you may recall, being at a conference doesn't mean you have a lot of spare time at a I conference. Did not how does that even how does that even happen? Um, oh no! Uh, yeah. What you didn't come? And it was a crowded room, and I didn't look all the way to the back. But what you're saying is you didn't have time to come hear us rant about ops in the time of serverless, containerized web scale. I came very briefly, <laughs> and, and uh, I parked my 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 little knee tr- knee scooter at the back, uh, and then I ducked into another session. And it took me a good ten minutes to get between sessions because you're wheeling the stupid scooter. So I, I, I saw less of it, some things than I would have liked, um, and. Being the chair, I tried to get to as many sessions as possible to make my see my have my face shown. Um, yeah. uh, varying levels of I success. hear you. Yeah, but but anyway, so I, I'm hopefully going to get more um, detail from Charity soon. But I'm very excited about that, just because Honeycomb.io people can check that out. It's like explorable ops metrics of the sort that you always wish you had built. And then uh, on the on the topic of stuff you'd wish you had built. Because when you need it, you really do. Um, Liz Rice and Ann Curry from Microscaling in the UK are working on Micro Badger for Docker image inspection. So if you've got your image and then you're like, I would really like to find out more about the things that are in here, because as we all know perfectly well, looking at a Docker file doesn't, depending on how the Docker file is written, doesn't necessarily correlate directly to the stuff that's in it. It's like add all the contents of CWD. What were those? I don't know. So finding out what's actually in your images. 
is uh, is pretty cool. And you, they have a microbadger.com tool to look at that. Um, awesome. And then finally, you follow Cloud Foundry Summit EU. Uh, they, there's hashtag Cloud Foundry. You can go take a look at what's going on with that. Trevor. So uh, as of today, Windows Server 2016 is generally available. Um, so that's mine. And Southern California is awesome now that I live here. Excellent. Oh, that's right. You were moving to California. I did. Where exactly in California? So I'm about an hour north of LAX in Santa Clarita. Awesome. Hanging out in the land of Schaefer. <laughs> as, it's, as it's commonly known. <laughs> After the apocalypse, it may be well known as that. <laughs> Hopefully we do not get a Trump apocalypse. Lord High Humongous Schaefer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you got it. Speaking of things going GA and shipping, uh, for my checkouts, one is Inspec uh, has shipped 1.0. So that's at inspec.io. It's compliance as code. So uh, human readable language for testing and compliance auditing infrastructure. Also super useful for testing your infra code. Uh, so that they started, it was released a year ago. Now it's released officially at 1.0. And uh, self-promotion can talk about things not ready to be released. Uh I took it upon myself to decide to write a shareable theme using the Hugo static site generator for people hosting podcasts. There may be all of three podcasts that even want to use Hugo and we're one of them and we won't use this theme because we already have our own. But if you want to do a pod, if you have a podcast and you want to check out this idea, if you go to GitHub slash Matt Stratton slash Castanet, you can check it out and tell me why it's good or sucky. So, um, Things coming up in the upcoming fortnight or so. So I'm getting married this weekend at uh, the Jim Beam Distillery in Kentucky on Saturday. So that's where I'll be. So everybody leave me alone for a while. Congratulations. Uh, Very awesome. I will completely ignore you at your wedding. <laughs> that sounds excellent. I, I, I actually said, I was like, well, Trevor will be there. We should record an episode. And I was like, um, no, that's like, the, <laughs> no. Yeah. Your fiance might have a few words about that. <laughs> yeah. Like, You'll be lucky if you make it to every table to say hi to people. Yeah. And you should pre-eat. <laughs> yeah. We will, definitely we will be posting. I'll put it this way. I'll try to post on the arrest DevOps Instagram that nobody follows. So. You really want me to use yet another service on the internet? That sounds stressful. <laughs> you many pictures of cats. Bridget. I'm barely getting a hold of Twitter. <laughs> um, okay, so I will miss the bourbon wedding, which is going to be awesome. Apparently, I'm going to be heading to Joe's family reunion, followed by go to Copenhagen. So I will be in oh. Europe for a little bit after uh, after I'm in the North Woods of Wisconsin. You'll be trading places but- with my aunt and cousin who live in Copenhagen that are coming to Kentucky. <laughs> so, <maybe laughs> so this is like conservation, <laughs> conservation of something, airline yeah. something. That's legit. Cool. So we got some conferences coming up. Uh, the chef community summit is uh, October 26th and 27th in Seattle. It's a cool open space uh, only event. And uh, if you use the code arrested DevOps, that'll give you 10% off your ticket, which you can get at summit.chef.io. We got a whole bunch of DevOps days coming up. Uh, Raleigh, Boise, Singapore, Detroit, Havana, Kansas City, Philadelphia, Ghent, and Ohio are all in the next uh, month, which is October. So go to DevOpsDays.org to check them out. And I'll be at Detroit and Philly for sure. I will be at none of them, which is not a reflection on any of those events being awesome. 
And ADO 2016. Yeah, ADO oh, yeah. 2016 will probably get you 20% off of most of those. It probably will. Um, and there's a couple open CFPs for DevOps Days, which you can check out at devopsdays.org slash speaking. Uh, so Brasilia's is closing the end of September. Sorry, I shouldn't have included that because that's in a couple days. But whatever, Warsaw is also closing the end of September, and they sent me a nice email about promoting it, so I'm doing that. Sydney's is open till October 23rd, and Baltimore's is open until December 9th. If you would like us to sort of promote your conference on ADO, fill out the form at arrestedevops.com slash conf. And uh, what about you, James? Where can people find you on the internets or in real life if you want them to find you in real life? <laughs> Probably not in real life, but um, uh, I'm available on Twitter. It's at uh, K-A-R-T-A-R. Um, I have a website, The Art of Monitoring Book has a website called artofmonitoring.com, very originally named. Um, I'm also looking for a new gig. So if you would like me to be your CTO or a VP of engineering or want me to help build cool stuff, um, I'm, I'm uh, on the market currently. Um, so uh, I like building teams and infrastructure and scaling things. And I know lots about stuff, um, you know, mostly, mostly stuff, but um, uh, some junk and things too and some things. Um, uh, sorry. And awesomeness. Oh. And awesomeness. I, I and, think um, that uh, we're finding out here, yay, they should definitely work with James. Cool. Awesome. So, yeah, uh, the show notes for this episode are available or will be available at arresteddevops.com slash art of monitoring. That website will have, it's got all the information about our newsletter, our merchandise, our Patreon, all the Arrested DevOps stuff you could ever or never want. Um, I actually just added a bunch of new content to the website. So let me know what you think. There's lists of podcasts and books and blogs and that's it. Uh, you can leave us a review in the iTunes store. If you want to help other people find the podcast, which we think would be awesome. Thank you so much, James, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to have you. Thank again. you so much for coming back. I love when we get repeat guests. <laughs> And we try, we'll try not to wait a year and a half. Uh, well, I live to see Bridget bounce up and down in her chair. So at least I'm, at least I'm let, let too far between that. This is, this standing. is a standing desk, buddy. There's no chair action here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did, totally, totally and to be fair, it does seem like you're sitting there. I don't know why. Maybe just where the bookshelves are behind you. Nope, I'm standing. I think you just have really tall bookshelves. With lots of books. I have a chair. Like literally, there's a chair right here. <laughs> there's a chair. In Joe the mostly shop. uses it when Joe mostly uses it when he's like using the Thunderbolt monitor to look at the waveforms while he edits the podcast. I don't use the chair very much. With that said, I'm Bridget at Bridget Crumhout, and I'm Matt at Matt Stratton, and I'm Trevor at Trevor G Hess. We're arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps and the banana stand. 